welcome to another episode of the Go SoCal Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Welch. And I'm your host, Chris Mullally. And today we have a very special guest, Dave Upsall, CEO of Actify, on the podcast today. And Katie? Dave, we're really excited about you being here. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So just to kind of kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and about your company, Actify? So I'm the CEO of Actify. We've uh, been in business for almost 20 years. Uh, We have uh, a couple of a thousand companies that are customers of ours, primarily for a piece of software that's used for visualizing, you know, designs, things that people want to, you know, have made for them. And most of those customers, turns out, are automotive suppliers. And so we uh, are looking at solving a couple of problems that uh, are hitting that industry today. Dave, the first question that I wanted to ask you was, can you please describe the emerging practice of enterprise visualization? Sure. So one of the things manufacturers uh, have traditionally done uh, is uh, when they have something they need made, whether it's something that they want made internally, you know, in a facility that maybe they own, or whether it's something they want to have something uh, someone make for them, you have to have a way of describing what it is that you're asking for, what it is that you want to have built. And most engineering today, that's all done on computers. Uh, no big mystery there. Uh, but when something's once it's designed, there are just a host of stakeholders in a manufacturing company that really need to know what is this thing. Uh, they're not engineers always, oftentimes they're not, uh, and they need you know fairly simple answers uh, from something that's very complex. You know, this design data that these uh, software applications, computer-aided design, Uh, create uh, are very dense. They have a lot of data in them. It's not just a picture. A lot of information, what kind of material is being used, what's the density of the material, how much of it is there, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. And so visualization is the term that's kind of used to describe how you get that kind of information in front of people without necessarily making it uh, necessary for them to have this complex piece of software they have no idea how to use. That's what we do with uh, Spinfire. It's almost like a more universal language that you're providing. Very much so. In fact, when the company was started, its, uh, its vision was they were going to do for this complex computer-aided design data what Adobe had done uh, for documents, that you could just make it ubiquitously shareable, put something on somebody's computer that would allow them to be able to consume that no matter what. Uh, and then... Uh, in about 2005, I think it was, Adobe actually bought a company that had the technology to make that possible, which we actually use in Spinfire today. The other one that kind of correlated or that I thought was somewhat similar is almost like a high-tech version of Google Docs, Google Slides, or Google Sheets, in which many people can collaborate across different um, departments, so to speak, but then it's really focused on kind of like that universal code or universal language that the managers can look at it, the engineers can look at it, and this is what we're manufacturing. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. The Google Docs analogy is another very, very good one. Yeah, and I think that's something that most people can kind of, they use that pretty much every day. So I think people can really relate to that, you know, analogy. They understand that. That's something that's, you know, people can comprehend easy. What you're really trying to do, it seems like, 
is make things more efficient for people and save people more money because they don't have to um, purchase extra licensing and all that kind of stuff. From these documents that have all that information, this visualization, keep stumbling over that word, how are the parts in the end printed, extruded, created? Like, is it straight from those documents or do you have to go through another process? Um, I guess, how does this um, fall in the pipeline, so to speak, when you're working with an OEM or anything like that? Well, in, I mean, in a very simple case, what it does is it eliminates the need to actually run prints of drawings, uh, you know, and when, when you, in the old days, when you used to have a stack of those around, you would have to spend a lot of time trying to interpret what it was that you really wanted to understand. When today, because of uh, the software's ability to capture all this stuff, uh, you don't need to do that interpretation. You can actually just look at it and get the answer that you're looking for uh, without having to look at multiple views and multiple drawings and that kind of thing. So it becomes very efficient. But where it really makes a difference is, and this is especially true in uh, the automotive industry, I think, uh, is that uh, there's a unique relationship between these suppliers and, and the automotive companies themselves. So it's something that's generally... I think well known inside the industry, but not so much outside the industry that most of the companies that we think make cars actually don't make anything. They design cars, they determine markets, they understand uh, what things the customers in that market really want. And then they decide what that vehicle is going to need, what it needs to look like, you know, what its characteristics need to be. And then they go have somebody else make them. I mean, this is done at a level where I can tell you in Europe, there's actually a company that we all know really, really well, that there's a car that all they do is they stick their logo on it when it goes out the door. That's that's the degree to which people are making stuff. But the suppliers don't get to decide uh, necessarily, uh, you know, how much... Uh, they're going to charge. They, they, when they make a commitment to to say we'll we'll build you this many at this price, yeah. they haven't quite figured out how they're going to do that yet. Mm-hmm. So, if uh, just to pick an example, if I'm General Motors and I want to introduce a new vehicle, and I decide what that is, I send out requests to the suppliers to say I'd like you to build these for me at, according to the schedule. How much is that going to cost me? They'll pick a supplier. Uh, often with just two weeks or so to actually respond to something that they're making a commitment going out several years. They might want all these parts delivered over a period of three years as they you know, project the vehicle sales to go. Whenever there's a mistake in that situation, it's the supplier that has to pay for it. So if they're spending eight to 10 months trying to figure out how they're actually going to put this thing into production that they committed to make, if they misunderstand something, if they make a mistake just in what they understand, that mistake is going to cost them. It comes out of their margin. They don't, they don't get to the, say they can make whatever profit they want. Their customer tells them how much profit you can make. And if you screw up, it's coming out of your side, not ours. Not, not our side. So the value of the visualization actually goes more to helping them avoid making those mistakes than it does making them more efficient at understanding what is actually there. Sure. So a single mistake can cost, you know, millions of dollars. Wow. When you put it like that, yeah. I mean, you, when you put money, when you're talking about, you know, a 
profit loss like that, that can be substantial for sure, you know, for sure for a company. It can be one thing. You know, a lot of the parts that are going on cars today are not necessarily used uh, terms like extruded and things. So yeah. they're not uh, uh, stock manufacturing techniques. You know, they're uh, things like 3D printing that are coming in, you know, to making that. There's a lot of composites that are going in. Uh, but you run into a situation where if I wanted to build a, uh, uh, a composite fender, for instance, mm -hmm. the tooling that I have to construct to be able to make that, because I'm putting something that's getting baked, basically, it goes into something called an autoclave and it gets heated and baked at high temperature, the, just the metal that it takes to make those molds can be up to a half a million dollars for just a piece of metal before you start cutting. So if you make a mistake and you cut that wrong and you have to start over again, that's another half a million dollars it's going to take just to buy the hunk of metal, no matter what other damage you did, you know, to your production schedule. So, you know, what the way we, you know, try to characterize that is it's about communicating the information, comprehending what it says and being able to collaborate on it. Those are the things that really make those processes work better for people. So that's kind of what we organize ourselves around. Awesome. Now, you just went through talking about the challenge of being a supplier. Yeah. Um, I've read some of your other stuff, and you also mentioned uh, current issues such as labor shortages and things like that. I was going to yep. ask you if you could outline a few of the struggles, challenges that suppliers are facing these days for people who don't know, who are in maybe a different part of the auto business? I've been around this industry for almost 42 years now, and I've never seen a labor situation like the one that we have. And in the case of automotive suppliers, it's happening in a place that uh, really is kind of the center of where all this happens. So I mentioned that, um, you know, a supplier gets a request to quote back to the manufacturer how much it's going to cost to get these particular parts made. Uh, and that a lot of times they're only given a couple of weeks. So if it's something that you that's like what you've built before, you probably have a pretty good idea about how much it costs to do that. You can make a fairly educated guess. Uh, but there's still a whole bunch of unanswered questions at that point because you need to find out who's going to make the tools for you if you're not making them yourself. You've got to go out and you've got to negotiate that. Uh, and in a situation like the one we have now where the prices for things are changing so rapidly, what guess you may have made three weeks later might not be any good anymore. So one week past that date you've made that commitment, you've, you're already upside down. So a lot of things are changing really quickly in that period of eight to 10 months. So that, that function today, organizing all of that activity that goes on in that eight to 10 months, that's where suppliers really figure out if they're going to make money on this program or not. The, the, the function of being able to keep all that work together is something called program management. And in any automotive supplier understands that you know word really really well but it's it's one of the only things left that isn't automated that's the crazy thing about it so you have somewhere between 9 to 12 stakeholders in any one of these supplier companies that are constantly needing to know what's the status of everything that's going on in this program and you can have literally hundreds of tasks 
that are interconnected, that all have to be related to one another because some of them have to occur before something else happens. And all of that is done manually. All that activity is uh, tracked manually, and it requires a really experienced, knowledgeable person to be able to do that. So you have, uh, you know, maybe in a company, you know, of 5,000 people, you've got, you know, six, eight, ten of these people, you know, inside that supplier company where the work that they're doing is really where the supplier's business is actually gets done. What's happening in the industry today and why the labor shortage is so acute is you cannot replace these people easily. There aren't that many of them around. But what the manufacturers are doing is they are uh, increasing the number of these programs that are coming into the market by more than 50%. In fact, one of the analysts that covers the industry said they think it's closer to 66% than 50%. So the OEMs don't see this as a problem, the manufacturers don't, because they're shipping roughly the same number of cars in total that they have historically over the last few years. What they're not recognizing is by introducing such a huge number of new programs all at the same time, mm -hmm. and this is where electrification comes into it, sure. because they're trying to get electric vehicles into the mix now. They're also trying to update their old you know, internal combustion engine lines or mm -hmm. come up with hybrids for some of them. They're introducing so many new programs that now that the suppliers don't have enough of these program managers to run the programs to get the work done for the OEMs. So it's become a real problem because it's inhibiting their ability to go out and get new business. And there's more new business in the market now than there ever has been for them from that standpoint. So that's one area where the labor shortage has just been really dramatic to see that. Um, it was about two months ago I was back in Detroit and in this particular week we were visiting six suppliers. And in two of those suppliers, the day that I walked in, each of them had multiple program managers walk in, turn in their resignation for new opportunities at competitive companies for a much larger salary increase. So you've got that dynamic that's going on too. So that, that's, uh, that's one place. But even, uh, you know, even when it comes to production, we have customers that have executives in those companies that are out producing parts on the weekend. During the week, they're, you know, in their desk at their day job. You know, they might be a director of engineering or a vice president of operations, but on the weekend, they're in making parts. So it's, it's a big problem. Well, Dave, you mentioned a little bit about the electric vehicle um, and how, you know, the transition with the major car companies, you know, everybody's got these promises to be totally electric, you know, by the years 2025, 2030, 2035. And, you know, Ford and GM both have made these, you know, pretty large promises to the American people. So can you talk a little bit about maybe how what they're doing and how they differ from each other in that market? Well, I think, you know, there's, uh, if you were to look at Ford and GM, I mean, there's definitely, you know, differences in how they're approaching that. Uh, you know, GM has, uh, you know, made a commitment, a push, at least the way that I'm reading it, that they're going to be all electric. They want to be an electric car company, you know, and I've, and I think it's by 2035 is when they actually like to get there. Ford, on the other hand, isn't, you know, making such a claim like that. They're setting it up as a separate business. They are running it almost competitively 
with internal, you know, the internal ice business. Uh, and I think that that's actually, in my mind, the smarter play for them to do. You know, there's uh, quite a bit of talk about how a lot of countries are setting these goals for when it is that they want to be all electric. And there's, it's just interesting because you can take a fact like in Norway, two months ago, they sold the last internal combustion engine car that will ever be sold in that country. Right, but what people don't realize is they spent twenty years getting the, the the population, getting the country ready to make that change. You know, so I I think Ford's I think Ford's you know approach is uh, you know interesting because it it's assuming that you know it may not turn out the way that uh, the way that uh, GM thinks. So one of them's going to be right. One of them's going to be right. It is interesting, though, that they're introducing it as kind of a competitive um, business. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's, you know, they, uh, they, they both have opportunities. Um, and, uh, you know, this way Ford will be in a position to take advantage of it no matter which way it goes. I did see um, or read somewhere that the new Mustang is coming out. I think it's like Series 7 or something like that on September 14th. And people are saying it may be the last um, ICE Mustang in history. We'll see. In terms of just general electrification, I have seen you mention in previous interviews um, the struggle with trying to get the infrastructure in the United States, at least, to allow people that aren't necessarily in major cities to drive these electric vehicles. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that general sphere of like, what is it really going to take to become an all-electric car driving nation? Well, I think, you know, uh, part of the reason it took them 20 years in Norway was is they recognized that, uh, you know, the infrastructure had to be there. And so there were, uh, you know, a number of different things that they did that encouraged not just uh, uh, consumers to buy the vehicles, but, you know, uh, you know, filling stations and other places to put the infrastructure in place. And if you think about, you know, I live out in the West. Uh, I actually live in the center of Oregon someplace. Uh, I, I can literally, you know, go in probably 180 degrees of direction and be seven hours away from an electric charging station. Okay. So, you know, there are places in this country where just the physical space is going to make it impractical, I think, to quickly, you know, invest in getting that infrastructure up. Uh, so there's there's going to be a little bit of a take-up problem there. But that's okay. You know, if the bulk of vehicles, you know, that are contributing to the problem are ones that are stuck on a freeway in Los Angeles or Seattle or someplace like that, get them off. You know, that that that'll help solve the problem. But there still is going to be that need for... You know, uh, I think for ICE vehicles and diesel vehicles, especially out west, especially out here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, we live in a major U.S. city. We're in the heart of North Carolina. We're in Raleigh, you know. But even here, I would say it's hard to find electric stations here to, you know, charge your car. I mean, we, you know, I mean, I drive a gas guzzler. I'm not going to lie. Like, that's what I drive. But, you know, I can't imagine, you know, and plus it's at the expense of having to have, you know, a charger installed at your house and all of that when you buy an electric vehicle. To solve this problem in the UK, mm-hmm. somebody came up with a really creative innovation. It was a self-contained charging station that you could install, say, at a petrol stop or, you know, one of the highway 
um, you know, they, they have the, the highway stores there yep. that you can pull off to a lot of times on the motorway. Uh, the only problem was is that it took more diesel to run the generator and the pollution that it put out canceled out any benefit of the electric car. And so it's, you know, we are, are we going to, you know, are we going to uh, uh, handicap ourselves in solving the problem, you know, by coming up with innovations that really aren't, you know, so it's, it's going to take some time. It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid seeing the, I don't know if it was NASA contest, but they would try to have college students build cars that were solar powered and just had all yeah. the panels on the on the roof. But I don't know. There, what's what's a truly um, renewable resource, especially with the lithium batteries? Or you talk about solar panels on the houses. What happens when they need to be recycled? Is it yeah. just continued waste? I feel like suppliers could potentially play a major role in how eco-friendly these cars of the future are you i mean they will be dealing with the type of materials that are more sustainable potentially there was a crazy story about uh, uh a guy in sweden that had a tesla and the batteries uh you know basically were exhausted uh about uh, less than a year out of warranty and you know the expense was somewhere i want to say it was around thirty thousand euros to replace the batteries in the car and that's something I haven't heard talked about very much at all is, is that, you know, you've got China owning about 80% of the world market in uh, rare earth metals, which you need, you know, a number of for, you know, the kind of battery technology we have out there today. How are we going to recycle that stuff in those batteries? You know, I, th th it needs to be done, but there isn't anybody that I know of that's doing it today. I feel like as the smartest guy in the room, we'll leave that to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I just have a lot of opinions. That's all. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting to think about. Yeah, that. And I mean, we, it's definitely a concern. You know, I don't, I'm with you. I have now that you mentioned this, I'm thinking back. You know, that's conversations that I haven't heard. You know, anybody really talking about, and that is a major concern about the recycling of that. And you know, I guess turning those back into being able to be reused in vehicles and yeah. how that's going to work. There's definitely some things and, you know, you mentioned the uh, recycling of solar panels, you know, which is, that, that's kind of the same issue yeah. going on with them. Just a general question. How do you feel in general suppliers are going to be either make, making a positive impact in the auto industry um, for the next year or two? What, what do you see them really providing for the industry? It's been interesting to watch, uh, you know, the uh, electrification effect, I'll call it. Uh, yeah. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the, uh, I think it was around 25 years ago, there was a, a guy that uh, headed up purchasing for General Motors. I think his last name was Lopez. And that's when the sort of, you um, uh, this, this, uh, we are the OEM. We will tell you what you will do. Yep. Th that sort of, Definitely. you know, approach to managing a supply chain became very popular. It was, uh, you know, a, a, it was a squeeze, you know, apply a lot of pressure and get prices out. But the industry, you know, was changing. That uh, a lot of the work the suppliers uh, were doing actually originally was done inside the OEM. In many cases, those suppliers were spinouts you know, from those companies. Uh, but that was kind of the way the industry just 
was working for a while and everybody just kind of accepted that. Well, now that you have these new companies coming on board as EV companies, yeah. in many cases, they're not bringing, you know, a lot of old experienced, you know, uh, industry people with them. Uh, they're, you know, taking people that are, you know, engineers that have maybe been working five or 10 years, sometimes not even in the auto industry, but they don't come into the business with that same attitude or that same approach. And so in some cases, the suppliers have actually been able to help them, uh, you know, by just sharing the lessons they've learned. This is a better way to do this. You know, let's, let's work together to, you know, make this process work for both our benefits. Uh, and you don't see those conversations happening so much in the old traditional relationships. It's more likely, uh, we've heard some crazy horror stories about uh, uh, what happens when uh, you know your program, the thing that you're doing for your customer, yep. uh, we use the phrase goes off the rails. In other words, it encounters a problem and all of a sudden it's all hands on deck. The worst thing that can happen is you have someone from that customer showing up and living with you while you try to work out this problem and is there, you know, sitting on your desk every day wondering what are you doing? You know, uh, there's still a lot of that in there. Uh, So, uh, but the suppliers have taken the opportunity to help these new companies learn and hopefully, hopefully what that'll do is it'll set up a dynamic where the OEMs are going to look at that. Well, maybe we should think about making that change. You know, uh, I'll give you one good example of, of how that could actually come about. So today, another thing that I think is generally not well understood about the auto industry is, is that, uh, especially by people that are outside of it, is how choreographed the dance is that goes on between a supplier and the OEM when it comes to getting parts to the factory. You know, the, they have it set up in such a way, it doesn't matter which supplier you are or which OEM or manufacturer you are, it works the same way for all of them that when it comes to saying, I need X number of this part at that plant at this hour, that actually happens over and over and over again without a problem. And it's because the suppliers and the OEMs all figured out that if they figured, if they came up with a standard way of doing that, if they came up with a standard way of doing that, then everybody would benefit. And there was, there's no advantage to any one company because they all work with the same suppliers. There are none of those standards that exist when it comes to this process we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why is it that you need this enterprise visualization tool? It's because not every manufacturer uses the same software, you know, to be able to design their parts. If I'm a supplier, I don't want to go off and buy all that different software. I want one thing that'll let me, you know, see what it is that I'm being asked to do. But there's nothing in there that's standard that like there is on the production side. Suppliers could help the OEMs work out a lot of this problem, but the OEMs would have to be willing to say, yeah, we think, you know, we can standardize on that. This is how you, you know, deliver a design to a supplier. This is how you deliver that request for quote to a supplier. They already have it on the production side. There's no reason they can't do it on, on the design side. Besides, you know, the electric vehicles and where that's going, what other kind of predictions do you see for this, as far as the supply chains mm-hmm. over the next, you know, year to five years, even 10 years down the road? Well, I think variations of the chip shortage will be those for a while. 
Mm. Uh, and that's just more because of how long it takes to, uh, you know, make changes in capacity, which is really what we're talking about here. Um, and that's also an area where I think, you know, from the automotive perspective, the manufacturers are struggling a bit because it's a very different dynamic for them. It's not like, uh, you know, I've got uh, supplier X down the street that makes bumpers for me. You know, there's a whole bunch of other people that, you know, can make bumpers, but there aren't a lot of other people that just have a spare chip foundry sitting around to make new chips. Uh, so that's something, you know, that's going to be with us for a while. Um, you know, I, I have to believe that, you know, inflation at some level is going to be around for the next 24 months. I don't see how it changes in anything less than that. Uh, and it's not so much that it's um, that, that prices are going up. It's the fact that they swing so widely, and it makes it very hard to, to predict. You know, if, if I am, um, uh, this, is, this is another example of uh, where, you know, suppliers and manufacturers could help each other out. If I have a run of parts that I didn't make over a span of about three years, I don't want to order all, if I'm making them out of some, you know, metal, for instance, I don't want to order three years worth of metal and have that sitting around. You know, I'm going to order it in lots, but, you know, how do, how do I hedge the price on that over a three-year period when things are changing like, like they are? Uh, and so it's, it's, if, if the change dampens down, you know, we'll be, we'll, we'll be a lot better off, but we've had customers that, uh, you know, for simple things, just like the resin that you use to make composite parts, that the fluctuation on that's been so much that, you know, the cost of a, a semi full of, of that, you know, in, in the space of a week can triple, you know, and how do you, how do you, how do you forecast you know, some of that. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, EVs are going to, you know, the, the, we're not going to see the numbers, but we're going to see a steadily increasing percentage of that go to EVs. I don't think we're going to hit the, you know, the 2030 threshold. I, I don't see that happening. So, but inflation for the next two years, the labor shortage is going to continue. Uh, you know, a lot of, there, there's just uh a transition there on the labor side that, you know, we're seeing the same thing in the software industry, you know, by the way. So it, it isn't just the auto industry in that case. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you to our viewers, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to us on Apple or Spotify. We really appreciate your support as well. See you next time. See you next time.